Hello, I'm Rolf Fontanelle. This is the Schwepp, the Secret History of Western Esotericism podcast. Today, we are delighted to welcome back to the podcast Koko von Stuchrad, Professor of Religious Studies at the University of Groningen, and a man who knows more than a thing or two about the intersection between ancient astrological science and monotheism. Koku, thank you so much for coming back to the podcast to talk to us. Thank you for the invitation. I look forward to our conversation. Yeah. So there is a, a myth uh, in scholarship. It's sometimes good to start from a myth as, as a starting point for a conversation. There's a myth that, not just in scholarship, but in the in sort of cultural memory, that astrology, belief in fate, or at least belief that the stars are somehow influencing things on Earth, was quite widespread in the classical period. But with the rise of Christian monotheism, it, of course, it was sort of the end of the golden age of astrology. And, you know, you had these fundamentally two different opposed things, Christianity and astrology. Um, and that was the end of astrology, really, except maybe it survived in some little kind of occult corners or whatever. And Jewish, same thing. Jews are monotheists, so therefore they don't believe in this stuff. Um, so I'm caricaturing a view, but a view that will be familiar to a lot of people. Like, yeah, that's, I thought that was kind of what happened. But it's not what happened, is it? Um, no, it's not what happened. It, it, what happened to, it, it is what happened to the reception of astrology, particularly in the um, scholarly context, but also in, in public uh, knowledge. Somehow it is um, understood that Christianity and, or monotheism and astrology don't really go together. And in real history, <laughs> this um, cannot be really proven that this is the case, quite the contrary. So the interesting question is, where where does the stereotype of astrology come from? And what are the stakes of these historians and um, theologians that are involved in presenting this narrative or this myth, as you say? And one of that is certainly a theological allergy, if you want, <laughs> against everything in Christianity and partly in Judaism and Islam, um, that everything that uh, limits the, the the freedom of the divine uh, would be um, frowned upon and it would be problematic because it then means that uh, the gods would themselves be part of fate. And that is, for instance, what some ancient as uh, ancient philosophers assumed in the stoic context for instance that gods are part of the fatalistic uh, system of causalities and uh, that's they better deal with it <laughs> but that was not the christian um, understanding of it and therefore this myth was developed in some sense regardless of what uh, happened on the ground if you want were in interest in astrology, maybe in other forms of astrology, um, we can talk about that, uh, would be a solution to say, okay, this is okay, but a fatalistic astrology that would limit the freedom of uh, the divine or of God, but also would take away the category of sin. Um, right. Because, I mean, if everything is ruled by the stars, then there's no space for personal sin yeah and and that that would have implications for lots of ethical but also legal systems in history so these are some kind of theoretical background both to why the myth or the the, the story started that 
the monotheism's kind of outlawed astrology. But but I mean these these are all arguments that go back to actual monotheist argumentation. So we do have people like Augustine, I think, where you find these these arguments more or less like we need free will because if we don't have free will, you can't have a proper reward and punishment system whereby you're damned or you're saved by God because God is totally just. All of these arguments, which are which probably are, are quite familiar to a lot of our listeners, they exist in, in Christianity. They even exist explicitly in late antique Christianity, but they're not the whole story, clearly. And they also exist in uh, Roman philosophy. Right. It's not only in, yeah. uh, in Christian philosophy. This was also an internal debate uh, among people who accepted astrology. Otherwise, these, is also, these are debates between different interpretations of what astrology is. And um, for instance, even in the quite fatalistic, uh, by, by that <laughs> understanding, uh, notions of uh, Stoic philosophy, mm. where you say that uh, you cannot escape your birth chart or the the rulings of that birth chart um, does not necessarily mean that there is no freedom they only say if you you need to know something if you have a birth chart for instance of a person if you're a peasant or a farmer you should not try to become a king and if you're a king or a prince you should not try to become a farmer so you are really there there, there is certain fate but you should become a good farmer and a good king that is that is what what fate wants from you and you cannot escape that so even within a more fatalistic understanding of the ruling of the stars there there is leeway to interpretation of how you uh, how you navigate these right. structures that are pre-described that is something that came up in an interview i did with Dorian Greenbaum, specialist on antique uh, astrology. She was talking about, we're talking specifically about Vettius Valens because he's committed to hardcore fatalism as a position statement. But then if you look at the way he actually does his astrological example charts and talks about like how this would inspire the person to act if he was if he had this chart, what should he do? He could choose this or that. He clearly isn't a hard fatalist in the sense that humans are just robots. He's at least got some kind of a compatibilist view of fate, mm -hmm. where you can have fate and free will somehow. In, I mean, no one's talking about free will yet in the second century, but just to emphasize that. Very few mm -hmm. people, maybe Clement is, but that which is up to us and that which is up to, not up to us, is how they would have framed it at the time. He seemingly, it's more nuanced than the idea of a hard fatal determinism might suggest. So yeah. thank you for emphasizing that these debates have been around for a long time. Uh, way before there was any hint of monotheism on the horizon. But now we, we're we in late antiquity. So let's say around the end of the third century, we suddenly have ascendant, uh, well, not ascendant, ascending Christianity in the Roman Empire. We also have Judaism, which is turning into this thing known as rabbinic Judaism, which, which whatever the various forms of Judaism before were, rabbinic Judaism really is monotheism, I'd say, in the same way that it really emphasizes there is only one God and uh, all the normativity that comes with that. So we have these two monotheist faiths, basically, in the, in the Roman Empire. You could argue maybe that the Manichees are also another parallel monotheist fate, even though they're dualists, but they're still monotheists mm -hmm. in a certain sense. Yeah. Um, 
So this there's a yes. debate, of course, about whether Christianity really is a monotheistic. A hundred percent. There are different powers in heaven in uh, Christian Christian theology as well. And God has a son, um, for God's and, sake, you know. Right, exactly. Um, exactly. Yeah. And, and and also, what what does it mean to be a monotheist is also something that does not, I mean, the Bible does not say there's only one God. They only say there's only one God for you. Right. <laughs> the other gods are for the other people. Hmm. So it does not mean that there are no other gods. And some of the biblical um, heroes also went astray, of course, and uh, mixed up <laughs> the right God with the wrong God or goddess. So there's not an ontological kind of statement that there are no other gods necessarily in monotheism, but it's a, right. it's a understanding that the, there's only one God for you and you should not follow the other gods. And that's, that's something where um, astrology also comes into play because it is not necessarily depotentialize those other divinities if you identify the stars with gods and goddesses i mean most people don't but some critics did and in, in, it becomes ritually uh, relevant for uh, these theologies even though they did not necessarily ontologically argue that these powers don't have power and in judaism this was a very strong development as well in the sense in the rabbinic sense that you that you described that we should not uh, honor these other gods right and if astrology honors honors the uh, the other gods in a ritual context astrolatry which is a horrible word but that is then used there um, the veneration of other gods then it is problematic but if you find and that is certainly true for uh, rabbinic Judaism but it's also true for many many forms of Christianity if you interpret astrology not in the fatalistic sense or in the uh, in the sense that you honor these powers and that they are something else than God, then there are ways to embrace astrology even in those monotheistic contexts. Right. This very similar debate occurs in Islam and in our interview with Michael Noble, we talk about Fakhreddin al-Razi, who um, is presenting himself as reporting the beliefs of the Sabians, another group, not Muslims, and the Sabians believe that the planets are or have ruhaniyat, these sort of spiritual entities, so something like a demigod or a daimon or whatever associated with them. And the thing he emphasizes is, for Muslims, it's haram to worship these these ruhaniyat. That's the only thing that, you know, ontologically, that's the only significant thing. It's a kind of orthopraxis question. It's not that they're not real. Of course, they're real. It's how do you engage with them? You don't worship them because you're, if you're a Muslim, and then everything's cool. So you you engage with them like you engage with people or like dogs or whatever. They're fauna of the universe and you sort of, you know, just don't worship them. That's the point. Um, and, and even in a monotheistic context, theology, you still would argue, I mean, God made this world. Yeah. Right? And God made the star. And God made us into people who can interpret the stars. This seems to be an intention behind that. And that's origin one of the leading theologians in the in the early christian christian faith the church fathers another horrible word <laughs> but i mean the um the, this interpretation if god would have not liked us to understand the meaning of the planets then he wouldn't have created our brains as as this 
like you said, in this context, it is um, not allowed to venerate those powers as gods, but that does not mean that we cannot interpret their meaning. And that's what Origen did, um, and he famously described the path of the planets and the stars as God's hand script. Hmm. And God's hand script, of course, we are allowed to read that. And uh, most of them don't really understand it. Then he says that angels can read it. And right. we only have a very few, maybe himself, <laughs> only a very few wise people who can access that knowledge, yeah. uh, that angelic knowledge. But then you have all these angelic uh, messengers like Hermes and all these people who then take the liberty and interpret uh, God's hand script to humans. And there are experts among humans who can communicate with them and that opens up a whole different uh, discourse of course but that can happen without venerating them as gods yeah thank you for bringing the example of origin up because we never did an episode on origin on astrology so origin just keeps on giving you know like every time you think you're done with him the new wrinkle of his thought comes up now one thing you know a lot about that i do not know anything about is the early jewish or the earlier, let's say, rabbinic um, material on the status of astrology within the Jewish life. I wonder if you could talk about that, because that's very fascinating. And it is a very similar understanding of the stars in that context, partly Platonic, partly uh, Stoic um, uh, understanding of the agency of stars and so on. But certainly there was a consensus also in the Qumran texts in the, from the Dead Sea uh, Scrolls and other contexts that we can identify, but also in the historians like Flavius Josephus and others, that there is a taboo to venerate those. But apart from that, there's a huge practice and an interesting science around that that is relevant also for religious understanding. And astrology was the major interpretational tool for politics, for culture, for history in the Roman Empire, particularly in the imperial, uh, imperial age. And of course, the Jews were not distinct from that general culture. Right. And they had their own understandings, their own take on that. On that uh, that's, that's fine. But they were still they were A, not uninformed about it, and B, they were not excluded from this discussion. And one of the interesting um, developments is that in the Hasmonean period, so that is the first century or the second century um, BC, and that also ended basically with the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in the year 70, but also later in the Bar Kokhba revolt in uh, the second century in one, 132 to 135. If we look at this period where Judaism was a political factor as well, particularly with the Hasmoneans and Herod, Herod the Great, uh, everyone knows that from the Christmas story. Yeah. Um, that, that guy, <laughs> these people were part of a political Jewish system focused on the temple, but also open to all kinds of Roman and Greek uh, philosophical thinking as well. And they were also part of this astrological hype, if you want, or 
general astrological discourse that characterized the Roman imperial propaganda, actually, um, and science and philosophy. And they were very keen on applying this knowledge to questions of Jewish political life. And um, it was already in that period that Saturn, as the, the seventh planet, was also ruling the seventh day, which is Sabbath. Mm-hmm. Um, so the the link between Saturn as a representative of the Jews somehow was already known. It was not general. I mean, nothing really was general knowledge at the time. Right. Yeah. But 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 it was. We have we have sources about that already. Also, mm. the emergence of the seventh day week um, that yeah. was a very yeah. complex complex process that basically developed in the same period. Um, with only the second and third centuries um, that that really was established, but also with close connection to the Jewish week, actually. Um, so there was some some knowledge about that. Everything that Saturn does uh, has something to do, has a meaning tied to um, Judaism. And if you link that to another planet, Jupiter, which was the highest planet for the Romans. Um, Zeus and Jupiter, the yeah. same yeah, power, yeah. basically, and that represented Roman imperial power. And then if you observe and calculate the movements of those two the slowest planets, uh, vis- yeah. the vis- visible planets, there was already a an, an interest in looking at their, what, what are they doing in relation to each other? And there are these circles, uh, cycles, I should say, um, that they meet in conjunctions in uh, in the sky, and sometimes they they are together for two or three years. It seems like because they go up and down and yeah. they are getting retrograde and blah blah blah. So it, it it's a visible thing for quite some time, and that was interpreted maybe then in that um, in that sense as well. And there are a couple of these meetings of Saturn and, and Jupiter in that period um, between 20 BC and 200 CE. We have some evidence that people actually looked at that. Was himself an astrologer, so he was trained uh, and he had advisors, astrological advisors, and it's very clear that he supported astrology as a Jewish king, Herod. a Roman. Jewish king, yeah, Herod. And he saw himself also as a kind of proto or would-be messiah. So he was part of a theological, political propaganda system. And if you then look at the Star of Bethlehem, the mythology about it, um, and all the, the stories that these three magi from the East Babylonian experts, basically astrologers, came yeah. to Jerusalem to to find the Messiah. And we have Babylonian Mesopotamic uh, texts that actually predicted this conjunction of Jupiter-Saturn in the year 7 BC. So we know that they calculated that in advance and interpreted it in a certain way. It is not 
a mystery to say, okay, oh, wow, um, from an astrological point of view, something can be expected from this, because it's right. if, if, the, if the representative of uh, the Jews meets the representative of uh, Rome, and maybe then Mars enters uh, the scene, right. uh, who is the bellicose, right, the warrior, uh, then something, then shit happens. We yeah. have to be careful. Yeah. And that's exactly what this uh, story then then has, and it is quite. I, I I don't think it's much speculation to interpret this episode um, in the in the New Testament as uh, political propaganda from the side of the Jews. This is also a red thread that runs through the Hasmonean dynasties, also later after the destruction of the temple and the, the Jewish revolt, because, the, for instance, the Jewish revolt had coins uh, with the star of the Hasmoneans as a, a central motive. And the Hasmonean star is easily uh, recognizable in this context as well. The, the star is rising in. Yeah, that's also right. uh, numeracy twenty four, the, the the oracle that is then becomes reality here in the war against the Romans. So there's a lot of evidence. Um, this is more than just uh, indications. There's there's a lot of evidence that Jewish politics was part of an political context that took astrology, astrology very seriously. Right. We've talked about that from the Roman side, the, the late Republic, late Republican Romans taking astrology seriously, which kind of that discussion sort of terminated with Augustus, the first emperor whose propaganda fully integrates astrology, among other things. Um, and he's publishing, he's putting mm -hmm. out coins with his yeah. own, you know, birth sign on them and stuff. Exactly. Um, and so exactly. these guys are competing yeah. with that. They're competing on the same playing field, as it were. Totally. And that, that is a propagandistic kind of tool that you see under Christian rule into the Renaissance, I mean, through the Middle Ages and everything. I mean, there, there is an iconography of political power that uses the, the birth chart of a certain ruler or some other combinations of uh, star, stars that, that feed or legitimize political power claims. Right. So there's that political element to astrology, which is quite foreign to modern ways of thinking. It's good for us to remember it. The, the closest thing we get to it is the occasional rumor that, you know, Ronald Reagan has a personal astrologer or um, this sort of thing. That was not a rumor. That's a fact. Yeah, it was true. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but it, it doesn't... But it, it was more Nancy than uh, Ronald. Right. But he's not then going and putting out, you know... Uh, he doesn't. He doesn't put his birth yeah. sign on his like personal White House letterhead or anything like that. He yeah. just kind of maybe makes decisions based on it. So people are still yeah. using astrology to make decisions, of course, but deploying it in this massive way, in a kind of ideological way, is very big stuff in antiquity and the Middle Ages and and into the early modern period, as you say, but less so now. And it's yeah. interesting because this, uh, at the Schwepp, obviously, we're, we're working within this um, Western esotericism paradigm, however limited it may be. But there's really, although astrology can be presented as esoteric, in the sense that it is, you know, higher knowledge, which is only understood by the select few, and so on and so forth. It's not marginal in any way. It's mainstream in most of the context that we're we're talking about. 
and even imperial, you know, it's not even mainstream. It's, it's, the, it's the imperial system of thought which decides what the mainstream is for everyone or tries to. So thank you for that uh, dip into the, the politics and into the, the history of Jewish astrology going back to like all the way to like late Hellenistic times into the Roman period. Can you summarize the sort of state of play in the rabbinic evidence, in the evidence from the Talmuds and stuff like that? So in other words, a Jew, well, because the Talmudic lore has been so long uh, lasting, it, it may be, there'll be many Jews today who are still, if you ask them, what's the deal with astrology? They'll say, it's this, this, and this, and it'll be pretty much the answer that someone would have given in like the fifth century. So what is that kind of state of play? Yeah, uh, one of the nice things about uh, Jewish theology is that there is no ruling opinion in right, the sense yeah. that, okay, this is this is canonical law that we can now decide on for, uh, for good. There have always been different uh, interpretations and understandings, and that's part of rabbinic doing Torah. It's not just mm. interpreting something that, that the text is, but interpreting uh, the, these texts, the, uh, the revealed understanding of the divine is part of the divine, is part of Torah. So the, the oral Torah and the interpretation of Torah, the hermeneutics is part of the ongoing revelational process somehow. This is mm. a very different uh, understanding of theology than in Christianity, which uh, many people don't really differentiate uh, in, in the sense it should be differentiated. So, and if you look into the, particularly the Talmud, where, where there is, all these opinions are <laughs> stored somehow, and then uh, later rabbinical discourse, basically then an interpretation of what's in there it can be, you can go into different directions. Of course, new knowledge comes in that changes perspective and so on. But the options that were there are still there today. And Judaism today is not an, not an exception to the rule in particularly Western Europe, North America, but also in Israel, that astrology is extremely popular. Right. And in Western Europe, it's more popular than Christianity. The uh, same is true for, for the U.S., uh, strangely enough. So it's, it's something that, that is there. And um, Jewish uh, philosophy and uh, theology has to deal with that as well and dealt with that in the ancient world as well. And on the one hand, they were quite, like what we discussed already, quite strong about the veneration part in the theological, uh, rational understanding of it. Uh, so that was not really an option that uh, Jews should take. But apart from that, also because that was not a real important part for serious astrology, even in antiquity, right. that you venerate those. That's something that is quite different from doing astrology as a hermeneutical or a scientific endeavor. So that that was ruled out on one but then there's a whole other interest like very close to what you what we said with origin as an example um but also many gnostic groups um had a very interesting interpretation of astrology took took that very seriously and the whole astral dimension of the stars not only the the, the astrology in a more limited sense but the astral aspects yeah. of religion were coming good um, it's also if you look at uh, the revelation of john 
uh, then this is full of uh, astral thinking. That would be another uh, case you can look at. But in the rabbinic context, for many rabbis, it was clear that you are allowed to interpret the revealed world and the the stars are part of revealed world and we can dive into the hidden uh, layers of this meaning and that's totally fine there's no no problem with that and they have for instance in one part of the talmud they discuss if you are allowed to draw um, the stars to make make drawings of it that of course would be right. considered uh, problematic in some sense but then they have this example you have to determine when the shabbat starts when the new moon starts when the new month uh, starts and you have to teach someone okay then the moon should be looking like this and not like that and yeah. you have to teach people and then you send out the news uh, across the community across the country to okay we have the new moon uh it was seen but how do you teach that you have to draw something so that that's just one example where where rabbi said okay well it's okay to do it in this yeah. in, in a school context but this is just educational and that's that's okay they were talking about certain stars even that they were maybe demonics they they used the dracon the dracon which is also greek for dragon yeah. that might be a star and i mean these constellations, these things uh, figure in the Talmudic discussion, but in a quite open way. So there was no real, real opposition against astrology as such. And there was also, they, they talked about free will quite a bit. And then one, one rabbi said, well, if God wants to change the course of history, he just takes Jupiter out of his uh, path and puts him in a completely other path. That's fine. God is free. But God did this in, in a certain way to tell us something. And he's free to change the course of Jupiter. Well, what, what do we know? Right. But, um, as long as we see Jupiter in this path, that it's okay to interpret it. So the, these are <laughs> intellectual exercise somehow to, to to actually allow the responsible use of astrology for um, interpreting time i love it mm -hmm. that's and that saves god's freedom yeah you know god could could if he wanted to change the course <laughs> of all the stars uh yeah which is not something an, an maybe an ancient Stoic would have agreed with, or Aristotle, or something like that. They're no. like, no, don't be crazy. That's no. insane. But um, <laughs> no. you've got an omnipotent God. The, the stars are either determining or corresponding to the, the the way history works. But God could change it if He wanted to. The fact that He mm -hmm. doesn't is another discussion. Maybe mm -hmm. that is so interesting. So thank you so much for first of all emphasizing the ongoing hermeneutical living nature of what you might call Jewish theology, because some people are going to get the idea that, well, they've got these books and it's all written down and they must live, they must just have this kind of set theological, like, like a Christian credo, except maybe way more complicated, mm -hmm. but it's not like that. It's this ongoing uh, engagement and sometimes struggle with a huge body of sources and then individual rabbis just giving it their own spin for hundreds and hundreds of years. And it's this, uh, this living tradition, but you can still talk about parameters, right? So what do the rabbis mm -hmm. say about the stars? We, we all agree we can't worship them. So that's one piece of a um, ground 
work. Although I'm, I feel confident that somewhere in the uh, historical lore, there will have been Jews who found a way around that as well, and have you know, we'll find Jewish magic devoted to planets and so on and so forth. But you don't worship them. No, you don't worship them. And um, there's also then, if you look at the t- Talmudic, if you if you buy a Talmud today, mm-hmm. <laughs> then you have the the major part are the comments. Um, so you have the the Mishnah text in the center, and then you yeah. have like notes around the comments that uh, were that, that came over the over the centuries. And what happened then in the Middle Ages is that. Maimonides, uh, Moshe ben uh, uh, Maimon, was a major discursive kind of um, uh, controller <laughs> of uh, the interpretation of it. And uh, Maimonides, although he was open to some what we would call then esotericism, maybe, but uh, or some mysticism, but uh, he was very Aristotelian in his understanding. And this Aristotelian interpretation of the Bible that Maimonides represented. Um, in the in the Middle Ages was very influential, and right. that also raised the counter movement within the uh, Kabbalistic movement, who, which was partly a responding counteraction against Maimonides rationalism, which you also find in some Islamic contexts, a very Aristotelian, but a counter movement that looks into the more platonic uh, interpretation, the more mystical interpretation, and not even allegorical, but really mystical interpretation of the biblical material that then also is Judaism, of course. But there there are all these different interpretations of that, and they all base their interpretation of this Torah as an ongoing revelation. Yes. I, I very much look forward to when the podcast gets to those those uh, medieval thinkers. And um, of course, the rise of Kabbalah is interesting to everyone. But um, it's interesting how this, um, the, the kind of hermeneutical mindset, which, well, Kabbalah is so so complicated that it's hard to even talk about it in, as a single thing. But one thing about it is this kind of hermeneutical flavor, finding correspondences and meanings, like like you said, not even allegorical, but mystical, right? <laughs> that gives mm-hmm. it, it's a really mm-hmm. good way of putting it. But the fact that we already see that in what you might call, for lack of a better term, mainstream rabbinic Judaism in late antiquity is really mm-hmm. cool and really interesting. And yeah. It shows that Kabbalah isn't some kind of out of nowhere separate thing. Although it may well be mm-hmm. a reaction to another flavor of what's going on, the Maimonidean, Aristotelian, sort mm-hmm. of high medieval scenario. You have that mystical interpretation already in the Talmud. So the, the official rabbinic hermeneutical rules that you apply to the biblical text um, has several, has four large um, interpretational methods and right. one is the literal yeah so the the, the other one is the um, allegorical which was quite um, quite prominent as well um, and the, a symbolic understanding of it but there's also the what they call sod which is hebrew for the secret there's the secret dimension of the text there was already one of the 
official rabbinic hermeneutical tools that were developed in in the Midrashim and in the Talmudim. And what the Kabbalists later did was uh, magnifying the thought, which right. was only one quarter, one, one part of rabbinical tools. But they said, okay, it's all about thought. We are the experts on that. And we tell you that forget the literal, forget the allegorical. This is the only, this is the main thing. This is the high mm. <laughs> kind of... Uh, uh, art of doing biblical hermeneutics and that true till today basically but it was already in late antiquity it was already part of the rabbinical movement in the second and third centuries now i feel like we should talk a little bit about christianity thank but i'm so glad we've talked about uh, judaism because for one thing i feel like the history of jewish astrology is just a bit less well known uh, than that of Christian astrology. And that of Christian astrology is, is already not very well known. In late antiquity, what's important for us to get our heads around? I mean, we've talked about origin and we've talked about some Gnostics, whoever they might be, who, who take planetary stuff very, very seriously. And we've talked a lot about different sort of late antique Gnostic groups. And some of them, when they talk about archons or rulers, are definitely talking about planets or or uh, constellations or both so in that sense they do have this idea of fate as a kind of constraining force and the archontes are the planets and they're the ones kind of keeping us trapped so that's going on what what else is going on in, in terms of early christianity or i guess you'd say middle period christianity <laughs> to do with astrology that's important for us to know about to understand that a little bit better i think it's important to look into different forms of astrology because there's the astrological method the astrological system of interpretation which is more uh, what i would call a philosophy of nature or natural philosophy in the sense that you have an empirical part of that that means you measure stuff you calculate the path of the stars and you work with these with this data uh, in an empirical and what we would call um, a scientific sense and that is already true for babylonian astrology that goes back 2000 years before right. um, christianity and they developed a rational system of calculation and also when you then go into the hermeneutical part of that, how do you interpret the movements of the stars? That's a different discipline. That's a different branch of astrology. That's the interpretational part. And even that is done on an empirical way that you, for instance, and that's one interesting example to to look at because it might be the longest uh, research project in uh, history were the astronomical diaries that the Babylonians had. Yeah. And these priests, um, astronomer priests, had to record basically everything that happened uh, in the sky and listed the correlation or the appearances, what happened on Earth at the same time. And they did this for 700 years. It's and insane. Th that is yeah. a huge. It's an insane, and all on uh, <laughs> written in, in on t uh, tablets, which is a lot of work. And then you, if if something like that happens again, like Venus rises with a red uh, light or something, yeah. then you then these 
poor astronomers had to dive into the archives. Oh, this happened 400 years ago. And at the same time, there was a disease of this in that uh, region of the empire or something. Oh, maybe this happens again. I should warn, warn the king. Yeah. So that that is basically an empirical method. So the right. the link between an empirical approach um, or what you could call a scientific approach to uh, the movement on this of the stars and the hermeneutical approach, uh, which were a unity in this natural philosophy until the 20th century, basically. So we're not talking about only the um, the, the ancient world here, but that characterizes astrology as a very special special knowledge system in cultural history. Mm. And what we talked about is Jupiter-Saturn that the Christians also interpreted in their own sense as a messianic birth for Jesus, um, was something that, that was part of this understanding of astrology, both empirically, philosophically, scientifically, and uh, interpretational. So that that what I would call the astrological context, and what you see in this Gnostic uh, long introduction to that answer to your question. But um, I think what's important to know is that uh, these many Gnostic and Manichaean and other um, also Roman religious uh, mythologies that were out there were not necessarily astrological in that other sense but they can be contextualized in this taking seriously the uh, the movement of the stars or the planetary world or the astral world in general, but then coming up with something that uh, might not necessarily be linked to this empirical part of astrology. So the mythology of, of the stars, for instance, or certain cosmologies that are then found in religious narratives, makes sense to not necessarily call all of that astrology. Right. You know what I mean? So there's still the astral mythology uh, around it that might have its own understanding. Yeah, yeah. It's always hard to know when to stop calling it astrology and when to, you know what I mean? And start calling it astral religion or astral in interest in the astronomical world. You know what I mean? It's yeah. so Because the stars are so, so important. To people yeah. iconographically propagandistically as you mentioned earlier um <clears throat> theoretically uh practically it's ev there it's everywhere so where does the astrology stop it can be a tough yeah. one but that that helps yeah. with um delineating that a little bit what you've just said the revelation of john you can see this christian mythology very much inspired by astral drama that right. you see in the heaven and the names of certain certain constellations and what what the dragon does to the to the virgin and then you have the scorpio there that eats up something and all these things um, that can actually be dramatized in a cosmic sense without being calculating astrology you know what i mean so Absolutely. there there are different different ways of taking seriously the heavenly world as as a source of inspiration or also a message it's not just a source of inspiration but it's also god's uh, revelation of some major truth and that can be then read by some experts like john himself in a vision somehow but it's still referring to actual movements of constellations in the sky 
the, and, and that whole world of taking the star seriously can have different um, manifestations. And this is certainly one that you see a lot in the Gnostic context, in the, the revelation of John, but also in uh, Manichaeism, in, but also in religious groups, communities in the Roman context, like the Mitras yeah. um, uh, cult that, that is, was one of the major competitors with uh, Christianity. So you really see this um, working <laughs> um, yeah. conversation across religious traditions and identities. A hundred percent. Koku, I think this has been an ins insanely uh, valuable and rich conversation. Yeah, just setting the kind of intellectual scene for talking about astrology and also just the astral more generally in the, in the monotheist world. Stay esoteric. <laughs> <laughs>